You know, it was just very recently that an American woman won the Boston Marathon for the first time in 33 years. It was an absolutely amazing feat on her part. Des Linden is the one who did that. First time in 33 years. And it was amazing because of what she accomplished, but also because of the conditions that were so brutal that day. I know because I was there. Marathon running is one of those very unique sporting events where running nobodies like me have the opportunity to participate in the very same race on the same course on the same day as the most elite runners in the sport. Weekend warriors don't get to go and play on the diamond with the, with the who's our baseball team? The Pirates. Thank you. <laughs> They don't get to do that, although there have been a couple of games this year where it kind of looked like there were some weekend warriors out there. If you watch me ice skate, you'd think it's like watching a baby learning to take their first couple of steps. So I'm not going to be on the ice with the penguins. But it was my great privilege to have the opportunity to run on that same iconic Boston Marathon course just a couple of weeks ago as the most elite runners in the sport. Now, mind you, a long, long way behind them, but on that same course. Now, notice I say it was a privilege to run. It wasn't a joy to run that day, and that doesn't have anything to do with the 26.2 miles. I knew what I was getting myself into in that regard. It had to do with the brutal conditions. At the race start, it was 35 degrees. It was a driving rainstorm the entire race from the start to finish, and it was A 25-mile-an-hour headwind the entire race with gusts over 40 miles an hour. Beautiful day. (laughs) Over 2,500 runners were actually treated medically that day, most of them for various stages of hypothermia. It's a beautiful race to run in on that day. Now, in most athletic competitions, people are trying to gain some sort of an advantage, and usually that is over the competition that is in the race, that that is on the field, and so on. On that particular day, people were just simply trying to gain an advantage over the conditions, over the weather because it was so horrible. I think Hefty had a jump in their stock that day because of all of the people I saw running in garbage bags, all the way to the finish line even. One of the guys I was next to at the start line was duct taped sort of head to toe except for the soles of his shoes so that he might try to stay dry. People were running with the shower caps from the hotel that they were staying in. One guy had Holiday Inn across his forehead. It was strange. As for me, the forecast changed so much from the time that I packed in Pittsburgh until I ran in Boston that the only thing that I had other than shorts that I thought I was going to be running in were kind of these long, loose-fitting running pants that had long since lost the tie from the waist. And I knew if these things got soaked by the end of the race, they'd be around my ankles. And so I knew it would be to everybody's advantage if I found something else, which I did. Sometimes people are trying to gain an advantage over the competition that they are up against. Sometimes, however, gaining an advantage is simply about improving the situation that we find ourselves in. And that's why I bring that up today is because we're going to take a look at a situation in our Miracles Sermon Series as we continue on with that. A miracle setting where someone is gaining a huge advantage over the situation they're in. And it might go further than what you would imagine if you think about, well, of course, it was was a miracle that was done. All of us in our lives have circumstances where we feel a need to gain some sort of an advantage in the situation that we are 
in. Some of us find ourselves in relational circumstances, maybe with our spouse, maybe with our kids, or in some other relationship where things are just so bad. They're just sort of kind of hanging on by the, the, the fraying little last strand of some rope in that relationship. And you know, apart from some sort of divine intervention, that that rope is going to break and it's going to be over. Other circumstances we find ourselves in, some of you are in, facing chronic and debilitating and progressive diseases, or your loved ones are, and you're just longing for a miracle because you've been to all the doctors, you've done everything that you can medically, and hope is just pretty much gone. On the other side, I know of a woman who was on her deathbed. The family had been called in. It was the result of having a heart attack while she was driving and the crash that resulted after that heart attack. And the doctors called in the family and they said, say your goodbyes. It's just going to be minutes, maybe hours. That woman worshiped with us last night at Pathway. Praise God for that. We long for those sorts of things. We long for those kind of miracles to exist in our own lives as well. And we pray for them and look for them. And we're actually going to see that very sort of thing in today's text where there is an advantage that is gained, yes, because of the miracle, but because it goes much further than that. It goes beyond that. And we can come to experience that for ourselves. And it goes to a principle that I want to try to draw out or, or center ourselves on here today, and it's this. It's our key truth, which is when Jesus is what you go after, advantage is what will come after. Now, that might sound almost simplistic. It might sound like, oh, of course that is. But it's going to happen in a way in this circumstance that provides an advantage beyond what was even imagined as the circumstance is underway. And we're going to take a look at that and see what that has to say to us here today. We're going to take a look at it in this passage we're studying today, which is Mark chapter 2. I'd invite you to open up your Bible to that spot or your Bible app or some way to access this text because we're just going to make our way straight through these 12 verses and see what it has to say to us today. There's an outline in your bulletin or on version if you like to access it that way. Today I want to take a look at with you at the advantage that comes that we see after Jesus or after these individuals go after Jesus and a few of the realities for how to find that for ourselves. So first of all, advantage comes when you, we learn it here, never give up. When you never give up. In the passage we're going to look at here, we're going to find some people who are very much in that category. They are never give up kind of people. Chapter 2, Mark's Gospel, the first verse says this. It says, a few days later. Well, what's that mean? Well, Jesus has been traveling around Galilee. And while he's been traveling, he's been preaching. He's been casting out demons. He's been healing the sick. He's been raising the dead. You know, just an average week in the life of Jesus. After that... When Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Jesus had been using Capernaum as a base of operations, and he's going out from there in these different excursions. And we find him now back in Capernaum and at a house. We don't know specifically if it's the house he was staying at. It might be Peter's house. We're not told exactly where it is. It ultimately doesn't matter that much. But what we do know is that there are people in Capernaum who very much want to be around Jesus. Verse 2, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So picture this scene. The Capernaum has not seen a crowd like this in a long, long, long 
time. People are just jamming, wanting wanting to get in. I mean, think Walmart on Black Friday. Think Times Square on New Year's Eve. Think the crowded public restroom when your child tells you a little bit too late that, Mommy, now's the time I've got to go, right? Okay, those are the sorts of crowds that they are facing here. And add to that fact that in the first century, the houses were not particularly large at all, and the people are crowded inside and now spilling outside, hoping that they just might be able to hear a little something of what Jesus is saying on the inside, Jesus was that much of a draw. And we see some others who were drawn in verse three. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Now, it says he's carried by four of them. And most of us, if you grew up in Sunday school, you probably had the coloring page. It had four guys carrying the guy on his mat to Jesus. This could have been many more than four who were actually coming along. Four are carrying him, but the text doesn't say how many that there are. It could very well be that there's a whole crowd coming as well. Verse four, since they could not get to him or get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof and, G- and above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. It would have been very easy for them to see the obstacle of the crowd. They're carrying a man on a mat. There's no way they're even going to get to the door, let alone in the door, let alone to Jesus. This would have been a moment when it would have been very easy to say, well, I guess it's not God's will that we would go forward with this. I guess this is the closed door that isn't going to allow us to get in and just sort of turned around and said, well, maybe another time, or maybe if we just sit out here for a while, once the crowd dispersed, maybe Jesus will come on. They're not doing any of that. These are never give up kind of guys, and so they're going to come up with another plan, and I just can imagine one of them saying, hey guys, I know. Let's go up on the roof. Let's put, punch a hole through the roof, and let's let him down through the roof, All right? I mean, who of us, if we have a crowd at our house, wouldn't be happy to have people go up on the roof and punch a hole in it and start dropping things through? Right? Yeah, okay. It's a little bit odd, to say the least. You might even wonder how that's possible. How'd they get the man up there in the first place? Well, just to set the scene a little bit, houses in those days, typically, especially of a carpenter or a fisherman, is what Jesus and Peter were, houses in those days were single story. They had a, pretty much a flat roof, and many of them had staircases on the outside of the house taking you up to the top because they would use it as a patio. And so access to the roof really wasn't all that big of an issue. They probably stairs going right up there. As for the roof itself, it says they dug it out. Well, it probably was some sort of a clay mixture that was on the top, something that would have kept it from being permeable to the rain and that would have caused that to run off and maybe some structure underneath that like twigs and branches and things that they could have caked it on top of and probably tiles underneath that that spanned the joists, which are probably about three feet apart. And so it says that they dug this out, and so they're digging out that mixture so that they might be able to get down to the tile that they then lift off and then drop the man on ropes down, or on his mat by ropes down in front of Jesus. Of course, that would have been making a huge commotion. There would have been dust and dirt and stuff falling down below, maybe onto Jesus himself. But these guys were not going to be dissuaded because they were never give up sort of guys who weren't going to let any kind of obstacle stand in their way of accomplishing what it is that they are setting out to do on behalf of this man. 
this story makes me ask in my own mind for myself and suggest to you that you would ask yourself as well, what lengths are you willing to go to? What obstacles are you willing to overcome to help other people make their way to Jesus? I think it's a very, very important question. As I think about that as a church, I've got to tell you, I've been deeply, deeply encouraged when it came to this whole thing of all in and and the children's building and all of those sorts of things. We could have said, you could have said, you know what, we've got a a children's wing, we've got our kids in there, it's kind of crammed a little bit, but at least there's the space and and the people and the teachers that we can provide for our own children. So let's just make sure we continue to take care of our own children. That is not what you said. What you said was, yes, we're glad that we have that, but there are many other people, there are many other children in our community that need a touch from Jesus as well. There are families that these children belong to who need to be a part of the Pathway family. And so we're going to make sacrifices for the sake of people that we haven't even met yet. And that's what you did for the sake of seeing people come and experiencing Jesus for themselves. And now we're down the road on that and we've come to meet some of those people that we hadn't met. And we've come to see them come into the ministry. And it just encourages my heart greatly that your spirit, that your heart is one of, let's minister, let's make decisions for the sake of people who haven't met Jesus maybe yet. Or that we haven't met yet. That's beautiful. That's overcoming obstacles that for many, they would have said, no, that's just too much. We're not going there. You didn't say that. Or what about just for yourself? What lengths are you willing to go to? What obstacles are you willing to try to overcome instead of throwing in the towel on the difficult circumstance that it is that you're facing? In that marathon, there were some times when I would come upon a little group of two runners One of them on their back, it said, guide. And on the back of the other one, it said, blind. That blind person was not going to allow the hand that they had been dealt to keep them from accomplishing the goal that they had put out there in front of them. And good for them. That is fantastic. It just moved me even to tears as I was running to know that they had that sort of a heart and that sort of a drive. Well, I so much long for us to have that in spiritual senses as well because we come up against obstacles. You might be facing some sort of personal crisis right now, maybe a health crisis, maybe a spiritual crisis, maybe a family crisis, maybe a work crisis, something that is going on. There is a way to conquer that, most likely, if we don't give up too soon if we don't throw in the towel, if we don't bump up against the obstacle a time or two or three and say, all right, I guess it's just not God's will. I guess I should just be stuck here and I'll just go ahead and settle in to what this means for me. The blind marathoner or the paralyzed guy here in our story face similar, seemingly impossible scenarios, but they never give up. And because they don't, there's a blessing waiting for them and waiting for us if you'll press on. That's because if you'll press on, you can gain another advantage, and that is this, to receive God's best. If this man or his friends had given up, they would not have received any of what we see happen as this text goes on, which is really awesome. Look at this, verse five. When Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are 
forgiven. This is a very interesting response on the part of Jesus. Here's this man, his friends, they're coming to Jesus because they want their paralyzed man to be physically healed. And instead, Jesus does something to heal him spiritually. Now here's my question. Do you think the man was happy or disappointed because of the way that Jesus interacted with him, because of what it is that Jesus did for him? It's a good question. I think it begs the question for ourselves as well. Would you be happy if you came to Jesus expecting that there could be a miracle for you and you'd start walking again and Jesus didn't offer you the ability to go walking? I think many of us would be disappointed because we want to walk again. We want to be free from the pain. We want our loved one to be healed. And I totally get that. I'd probably feel some measure of that disappointment even myself, but it's a short-sighted reaction. We want the healing that might last a few years or maybe 10 or maybe 20 or maybe even more when what Jesus is coming to offer is something that lasts for eternity. We can be so short-sighted. How would you feel about that decision 100 years from now or a million years from now? Forgiveness of sin is arguably the greatest of all miracles anyway because it meets the greatest need. It costs the greatest price, but it brings the greatest benefit. And so that's what Jesus comes and offers because he recognizes there's an advantage that this man wants and needs, and it's not just a physical one. It is a spiritual one that is going to bring him his greatest benefit. Now, Jesus' response here of healing the man of his sin when he came for physical healing, has a lot of people arguing that, well, there must be a one-to-one correlation between somebody's sin and somebody's illness, right? And in one sense, that is true because disease and death is present in our world because of sin, because of the fall of mankind. But Jesus is not telling us that here in this story that is a one-to-one correlation. In fact, he says quite the opposite in the Gospels. One day the disciples came to Jesus and they said, who sinned, this man or his mother, that he was born blind? And Jesus says it wasn't either of them. He says these things have happened so that something even greater might be accomplished. It doesn't mean that there's never some sort of one-to-one correlation, but there's no reason that we should insist on the fact that it is. This forgiveness was a great blessing for this man, and it went beyond what was imagined. The advantage that he gained went far beyond what he would have considered at the outset. But not everybody is happy about this. Verse 6, Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? Talking about Jesus. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know what? They're right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Nobody can. The problem was that they were so hard-hearted that they couldn't recognize that this actually was God who was forgiving these sins in the person of Jesus Christ. They'd already come to their conclusion that there was no way that that could be who this is, even though they had been waiting for the promised Messiah for years and years and years at this point. They had the opportunity to experience the greatest blessing in spiritual advancement that was possible and it was all there right in front of them but instead of an open heart they came with a critical spirit and it shut them off from the blessing that could have been birthed in them right there 
forever. Now we need to be careful instead of just pointing fingers at those, yeah, those teachers of the law. We need to evaluate where is it that we are in that same connection. Because sometimes we take on a critical spirit and maintain a closed mind and we can't see the movement of God right in front of us either. Some of us can be so sure about what Jesus looks like or about how it is that God will act in our world or won't act in our world that we miss the move of his spirit because we have put God in a box. We've said this is what I believe about who God is and what he can do and if there's anything that happens outside of that, even if it's of some supernatural origin that kind of looks like God, it's not in my box and so it can't be God and so we dismiss ourselves from recognizing the work of God. We've hardened our own heart because of our narrow theological conviction. We can fall into the trap of the theologically narrow-minded who say that Jesus can do more than all we ask or imagine, but we deny it's him if we see it. If it's outside of our comfort zone of understanding. Experiencing God's best might not be what we're expecting, at least what we were at the start, but we need to be ready to receive it when it comes along. It's back to our statement. When Jesus is what you go after, advantage is what will come after, and we need to be willing to recognize what it is that he's doing rather than I'll accept this much of it because this is who I believe that you are rather than opening up our minds and our hearts to what it is that he might want to do in us and through us and around us that brings an advantage that we weren't expecting and that we might not have recognized otherwise. One more reality from this text is that advantage comes when you let God amaze. When you let God amaze. After Jesus forgives this man's sins, the teachers of the law are in a lather. They are worked up. They have their knickers in a twist. However you want to say it, they are not happy. Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Well, that's easy. It's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, right? Because you can't see if that happened, at least not immediately so. So you can make a claim and nobody can prove it to be wrong. I could easily stand up here and tell you that, yeah, I've shot 10 holes in one. I had dinner last week with Sidney Crosby, and I know where the Spotlight 88 used to be. And you can't argue against me because you don't know one way or the other. I can say anything that I want to say. It would be much harder for me to say, yeah, and I can break dance while I'm delivering the rest of this sermon because you could see whether or not that was true, whether I could do that or more to the point that I can't do that, right? It's easier just to say it and Jesus knows that they're not going to be convinced by his words alone. So he goes on in verse 10. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He's wanting to prove that he's got the ability to do what the advantage was, which was the forgiveness of sins, which is the greater deal. And he's pointing that out. But in order for them to know that the greatest is possible, he's going to show them what he is actually saying is the lesser. Again, verse 10. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up. Take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. 
And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. It is true that there wasn't any reason for doubt about who Jesus was or is. This miracle absolutely cemented it for everyone. The teachers of the law saw it like everybody else, but if you read the rest of Mark's gospel, you'll see that it didn't convince them. Or at least they weren't willing to let God amaze them. And in order to do that, what they had to do is bury the very evidence that was happening right in front of their own eyes. We all face that same circumstance, that same decision. We have the testimony of the Scriptures. We've got the miracle of of creation, which Paul tells us leaves us without excuse. We've got the miracle of life itself. We've got the miracle of changed lives being given over to God. We've got the miracle of healed bodies and much more. What are you doing with all of that evidence? In this crowded house, almost everybody let God amaze them and responded in such away. A few others instead held on to their predetermined conclusions and they ignored the clear evidence that was right in front of them to their own great detriment. We can live with that same sort of skepticism and stubbornness if we want and many people choose to do that to their own harm. I understand it's because the miraculous doesn't seem all that rational or realistic to naturalistic minds. I get that. But just because it might not seem reasonable doesn't mean that it's wrong. It doesn't mean that it's not reasonable or rational. That would be the same as having to jettison everything to do with faith if you came to that sort of a defining line or anything that's even against the odds. Letting God amaze you isn't checking your brain at the door. It's opening the door to the idea that some of the things that you can't explain in any other way just might have some, something to do with God. And as for those of you who would already be in the position where you would say, well, I believe. We too are ones who need to let God be in a position in our lives where we're willing to be amazed by what it is that He is doing or might do. As we said earlier, we can wholeheartedly believe in God. Yes, I believe in you, God, and still keep him in a box. We can still keep him locked up. We kind of actually like him there because as long as he's in the box, I can control him. I can take as much of God out of that box as I want, and I can keep the rest stuffed inside. And we like that because it means that God is not going to rock our boat, as it were. But my friends, you need to understand that the God of miracles is a boat-rocking God. It's who He is. It's how He wants to show Himself in your life. He has no interest in simply allowing the status quo to just kind of continue on in your life. Yes, maybe you have put God in a situation where you can just sort of have the confidence that you believe in Him, the confidence that you have heaven secured. Now, God, just give me that and just kind of leave me alone. Let me live my own life. Let me kind of keep it on the plane that is just, I know it's a little static and I know it's a little boring, but at least it's predictable and I'm happy to live there. Instead of taking the lid off of all of that and allowing God to do in you and with you and through you the things that a supernatural, divine intervening sort of God would do in a life like ours, like yours. 
That is so much what I want for us. It's what I want for me. It's what I want for Pathway. It's what I want for you, that we wouldn't experience just a a small little God that we can control, but rather that we would live our lives in such a way that the miracles that we're talking about, that we so much desire to have present in our lives, would be our experience, that we would live by faith, that we'd be willing to step out into realms and in places and in ways that we have been reluctant to do before, because sometimes I'm afraid that we are afraid to hope I think we're afraid to believe or to trust or to to step out in such a way that asks God to do for us and in us and through us things that we might not otherwise imagine because what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't come through? What if I step out and I end up just kind of feeling like I'm out there on a branch? And so we'd rather live a small existence, a small spiritual existence where we just keep God in our box and we're not expecting much out of him. And you know what? I can just, I can endure. I can live this life. I can just kind of settle into it and make that just be the way that it's going to be. And I'll make excuses for God why he didn't show up or why I never asked him to in the first place. Instead of saying, friends, we serve a God of miracles. We serve a God who wants to do immeasurably beyond all that we ask or imagine. Is that just a verse that means nothing? Either it's a verse that means nothing or it's a verse that we are responsible to live by and to expect is going to happen. What's that mean for you where you live? What's that mean for your life? What does that mean for what you're trusting God for? What does that mean for the degree to which you are stepping out in faith to do that which God is calling you to do? But you've just been too reluctant. I believe it means taking some risks. I believe it means that we start to step out in ways and go after some things that if God doesn't show up, we're going to fall flat on our face because he's the only one who can accomplish those sorts of things. That we take that first step into the Red Sea, into the Jordan River, and it doesn't part until we've started to move. Where's that step that you need to take? Where's that in your life? Where's that in your home? Where's that in your family? Where's that in your relationships? I don't think you really want to live a small existence spiritually. It's just you're afraid that if you step out, it just might not happen. And then what? Instead of thinking that it might not happen side of things, Open your heart and your mind and your life up to what if it does happen? Where am I left then? Then what does that do for my faith? Then what does that do to inspire who I am and where it is that I'm going and what I really believe about who God is? What does that, got, or what does that do to the box that I've been stuffing God into? It blows the sides off of it. We come to experience God as God desires to work in our lives. There's an advantage to be gained. When Jesus is what you go after, advantage is what will come after. And in ways and in areas that you probably aren't even imagining in the moment. Just like this man wasn't experienced, the paralyzed man, but he got more than he was bargaining for to his great blessing and benefit. 
And I have every reason to believe, and so do you, that that will be your experience also. If you're willing to never give up and go after God's best and let God amaze you with what it is He wants to do in you. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank You for the example that we find in this man. Thank You for the example we find in Jesus who is saying there is so much I want to do in You and for You and through You. And I can do that if You won't give up. If You'll believe. If You'll come and expect that there are going to be great things that are going to transpire. If you come to believe and take me at my word that I will meet you in the midst of your circumstance, that it will carry you to the place that you need to be. Father, we want to live in that realm. We want to be those people. So Lord, help us to take the lid off. Help us to stop trying to stuff you into a preconceived box. Give us the faith to step out and go after great things. Lord, we know that's the realm that You operate because You have shown Yourself again and again from a paralyzed man that You made to walk and beyond that spared him of his sin to a demon-possessed man who You cast the demons from to His great benefit. To Lazarus who laid in a grave and You showed up and brought life. Lord, we believe today that You continue to have the strength and the power and the inclination to do the great things that lead us to an advantage that we might not even be expecting but that will accomplish Your glory and bring our benefit and lead us to the place You desire us to be. So Lord, give us the faith to be those people, the courage to step forward, and the eyes to see You working, amazing us through what You're doing in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.